All right, let's pray together, you guys. Father in heaven, thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that you harbor us in the storms of our lives. When we come together on a morning like this, uh, we all have, although we're looking across at each other across a room, we have no idea what everybody's story is. We don't have any idea what kind of storm some of us are weathering today. And so I just pray for us that we would lean into your protection, that we would lean into your goodness. We would lean into that part of you that says you will harbor us and care for us in the midst of those stormy times in our lives. Lord, we love you. We seek you out. We have, we have spoken your word together, and now we want to look into your word and have you touch us with it. We want you to speak to us through it. So we seek you out today through our good Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right. Hey, before we look into scripture today, um, can I make an invitation to you? Coming up in August, we've got this thing called the Leadership Summit, and uh, it's a beautiful leadership conference that we offer here at Lakeside. It's, it's uh, broadcast by satellite around the country and literally then around the world. There are about 300,000 people. Hey, thank you for getting a picture of my bald spot there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nice. Thank you. Yeah, oh, yeah, you get what you asked for. Whatever. Uh, now I don't know what I was saying. Oh yeah, leadership. You're fired. No, just kidding. That's not leadership. Let's see. Uh, leadership Summit is coming, and uh, I don't, it doesn't matter who you are. You have influence in somebody else's life, and then you might have influence in only the lives of your immediate family. You might have influence in the lives of 8 to 15 people that we call your oikos, those people God has put in the front row of your life. You might have influence over 200 people or 2,000 people. I don't really know, but you have influence, and that makes you some kind of a leader. And I would like to invite you to come to the Leadership Summit uh, in August 11th and 12th. If you've never been to it because you go, I'm not a leader, or I, you know, come and join us. It will blow your mind the things you learn and the things you will be able to apply into your life from what you get there. This year, we're adding something on that's only happening here at Lakeside. All the other sites around the country are not getting this. We're doing a thing called summit underground and it's going to it's going to sort of make the leadership summit expand for us and do some other we're going to add some other ingredients to it make it more interactive uh, more conversation starters and things like that so plan for it august 11th to 12th go online sign up the lakeside early bird discount goes away in a couple of weeks so make sure you get that on your calendar and then get signed up and join us for that yes all right cool uh, so let's, uh, let's look at the scripture together. Think about this. G- give me an answer to this question. How many of you have ever been brought back to life? One. How, how was that? It was, it was all right. It was all right. You're here. That's fantastic. We should celebrate her because she's here, right? That's beautiful. Now, I don't know how this works. I don't know how it works for you, and I'd love to hear your story, but um, it just seems to me that if, if you, like, you were brought back to life, it would change your life. Oh, so you're admitting that now that you're saying it's not just, well, it was all right. Yeah, it, changed, it was all right. It changed my life. I'm here. I'm here. Now, think about that, and think about your life, and let me ask you another question. How many of you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus? Now, wait, wait before you get too hasty. No, wait, I, I, I want to ask that question, but I, I don't want to put you on the spot because some of you came in today and you're investigating who Jesus is and you know you haven't made a commitment to him and now the guy up front's like, hey, who's a follower of Jesus? And you think we're going to separate people right here. We're not. 
And so, you know, if, you, if you're investigating who Jesus is and you're trying to figure that out, God bless you. You're in the right spot to do that. And we will do everything we can to help you uh, figure out who he is and learn to follow him. That would be a beautiful thing. So I'm not trying to put you on the spot. So if you don't want to raise your hand for this, that's cool. But now let me just ask you, how many of you consider yourselves followers of Jesus? Awesome. Now, let me tell you something. If you just raised your hand, you have been brought back to life. And see, the problem with us as Christ followers, sometimes we've been brought back to life. We go, how, how was it? Uh, it was all right. That was perfect. That was well, so well done. Uh, it's like we rehearsed or something. And yet that's what we do, right? It's like, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. Really? Then he rose you from the gra- rose you. He raised you from the grave. You know, I, here's, my, here's my opinion about this. Nobody lives life better than someone who's been raised to life. Nobody lives life better than someone who's had a, a God-given do-over. Nobody. And the Bible says, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been brought back to life. You have a God-given do-over. That's a gift. That changes everything. Nobody lives a life better than someone who's been brought back to life. I want you to look through Scripture with me to, together today uh, for a few minutes. We're going to look into Romans chapter 6. So if you have your Bible and you want to pull it out, you can. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the chairs near you. Uh, you can pull out your smartphone. We've got some notes on the YouVersion Bible app in there, so you can follow along in that. Or you can just listen. That's fine. Uh, we're going through Paul's letter to the Romans. We call it now the Book of Romans, but it was literally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Rome 2,000 years ago. And he wrote this letter because he hadn't been to this church. He wasn't the one who started that church, but he wanted them to know some things about who God is. And it's full of ideas and truth and and principles about who God is and what God does in us and for us and then through us. And we've learned, and Christians over the years have learned, that this book is rich, not just for the people who received it 2,000 years ago, but it's rich for us today as well. So let me read for you a a few verses from Romans chapter 6, and you can follow along with this. Verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, let's just stop there and think about that for a minute. As we're walking through the story of Romans, Romans is all about good news. The book that I'm in the process of writing that's going to be a companion with this series is called Good For You because it's all about the idea that God gives us his gospel, and gospel means good news. And everything Paul writes about in here is for your good news. It's for your good. It's for my good. So that's the backdrop of what he wants to say to us. And then he asks a question because Christians often get confused. He says, well, what shall we say about this? All this stuff I've told you. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, that's a weird question. If that's how he started the whole book, you'd go, that's a weird question. But that's not how he started. In chapter 5, he's, he's talking to the Christ followers in Rome. And he's like, hey, you know, um, some of you get worried because you, you've, you, you've put your faith in Christ. And then you sin. You're like, oh, no, I'm in big trouble. And some of you sin big, and you're like, oh, I'm in big trouble, bigger trouble. And he, and he said in chapter 5, he goes, yeah, but, you know, where sin increased, grace, God's grace increased even more. 
where sin increased, God's grace increased even more. And so some of the Christians were scratching their head like, well, how about that? If I sin more, then God's going to give more grace. So if I sin, it gives God a chance to do his thing. So I'm going to sin bigger. And Paul thinks through with them what they're thinking. He's like, no, no, no. I know what you're thinking. Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? He goes, er, thank you for playing. No. By no means. That's not how this works. And then he says, or, or didn't you really understand your baptism? When you got baptized, he goes, did you understand what that baptism was all about? Because if you understood it, you wouldn't ask that kind of a question. And he goes on and he describes baptism. Baptism was designed by God and designed by the early church to be a picture of the gospel. It's designed really to be a visual aid to the gospel so that when you see someone get baptized or when you go through the process of baptism, it teaches you something about your faith in Christ and your journey with him. So it's designed to be a picture of of the good news. Now, one of the problems for us when we read the English Bible is that when the translators of the Bible from Greek, the New Testament from Greek into English, they neglected to translate this one word, probably for political reasons, which is weird. You go, there's politics in the church all the time. So, so we, there are some churches, and, and some of you may have grown up in these various kinds of churches. I've made, a, I've made a journey through all these kinds of churches when I was growing up with my family. So some churches, when they baptize, they pour water on someone's head. And some churches, when they baptize, they sprinkle water on someone's head. And some churches, when they baptize, they dunk the person all the way down in the water and bring them back up out of the water again. There's different ways that churches baptize. So when the translators of this passage got to it, they were they're like, well, what are we going to call baptism? How are we going to translate the Greek word baptizo? Oh, and as soon as I tell you that word, baptizo, that's Greek. As soon as you hear that, you're like, well, they didn't really translate the word. They, just, they did what they call transliterated. They just changed the letters from Greek, Greek, from, Greek, from Greek letters to English letters. And they didn't translate it. They just called it baptized, same word. What's interesting, if you go to the lexicons of Greek, you'll find out that the word baptize literally means to dip. It means to dip something. It's what coffee drinkers do to donuts. Some of you drink coffee? Some of you have donuts? You ever baptize your donut? That's a, that's a holy donut. Which means has no calories too, I'm sure. Don't write that down. It's what milk drinkers do to Oreos. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, we have people in the balcony today. Nice. Yeah. Cheering section. You like Oreos. And, and Thank you. Wow, what, more, more plants today. This is awesome. Uh, yeah, it's what milk drinkers do to Oreos. You, you, you know, the Oreos are all right, especially if you eat the filling. But, you know, when you dip them in milk, well, it's way better. It's what the garment industry did in the early days, 2,000 years ago. It's what the fashion industry did when they were making clothing in, in, two, in, the, in the generation that Jesus lived, in Paul's generation when he wrote this letter. When they were in the fashion industry, most of the garments that they created were like, they came out sort of a white color or sort of an off-white color. And they had fashion designers back in the day. You know, we think, oh, we're all, we got this fashion stuff dialed in. They were into fashion 2,000 years ago. And the fashion leaders and the designers back in the day, they're like, Hey, you know what? Off-white clothing is boring. It's so last century. They go, we need color. We need color. 
And so they were like, well, how are we going to make our off-white clothing colorful? And they figured out this thing called dye. And they were trying to figure out different ways to put dye on clothing. And so some of the people poured it on. But it was messy. Didn't get, off, didn't get the whole garment covered. And some people, they would sprinkle it on. Sort of came out like first century tie-dye. It was, you know, they'd love it later on, but they didn't really know how to do it exactly. That didn't really work. And then they found out they could fill a barrel up with dye. And they could take one of their... Uh, white pieces of clothing and dip it down in the dye, let it sit there for a while, and then when he brought it out, it was transformed. It changed color. And the word for dipping that cloth in a barrel of dye was baptize. And it was all about transformation. See, the same thing happens to us when we baptize people, especially down like at the, at the American River every now and then or, or Lake Natoma, we have a baptism down there. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. When we baptize you, when you come out, you're blue. Because <laughs> you're frozen. You come out, you're like, I'm transformed. Look, I'm blue. Not exactly what we're talking about, but that's the concept from the clothing industry, from the fashion industry 2,000 years ago. They baptized the clothing to get a color that they wanted. They transformed fabric through baptism. Well, when Christians started baptizing one another because they were followers of Jesus, that's the metaphor they had in mind. They're like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to put someone under the water and bring them back up. It's going to be like they're transformed. And that's the whole Christian life. God wants to transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So he wants us to be transformed. And your baptism was designed to picture that. But then... As the early Christ followers were doing this, developing this thing called baptism, and they didn't have like an instruction book. We got Romans 6 that describes it. We got Colossians 2 that describes it, but they didn't have those things. So they're watching the baptism process, and when they were putting them under the water and dipping them, usually they laid them down backwards, sometimes forward, but when they laid them down backwards, they put them under the water, and it looked to the, to the observers, they're like, look at that. It looks just like Jesus going into the tomb. They're, they died, and they are buried with Christ in baptism into death and then it gets even more amazing because when they bring them back out of the water the water kind of parts and they come back up and they're like it looks like a resurrection now that transformation has a whole new set of meanings we did a baptism recently uh, over at Folsom Lake which was nice to have water in it so we could actually do a baptism there this year so we had we had adults and children, people who are being baptized, and they're like, I'm going down under the water, I'm putting my faith in Christ, and I'm dying with Christ to sin. And then we bring them back up out of the water, and it's resurrection, it's brand new life. And that's the declaration that baptism makes. I am living a brand new life. That's what it's all about. Paul says, you guys are asking yourself this question, shall I go on sinning so that grace might increase? He's like, no way. You died to sin. We buried you in your baptism. Don't you remember? Didn't you know what it meant? And then at the end of your baptism, we raised you back up to brand new life. You don't live to sin anymore. You live for God now. That's the picture. Now, I know a lot of you have already been baptized as followers of Jesus. And you raise your hand, you're like, hey, I I follow Jesus, right on. And and many of you would say, yeah, I've been baptized. But there's some among you probably who've not yet been baptized. Maybe you didn't know what it meant. Maybe you didn't know what it signified or something. I just want to invite you in. I want to invite you into a baptism process. Our next one's going to be October 22nd and 23rd. It's going to be an amazing 
storytelling time where we're going to get to be witnesses of one another's stories who are followers of Jesus. We're right here in the room, and it's going to be a great celebration of what God's doing in us and among us. I died to sin. I came back to life as a follower of Christ. So uh, put it on your calendar. If you haven't been baptized, put it on your calendar. Uh, you can sign up that on the Connect card we had you fill out. Just uh, put down, I want to get baptized on, in October. And we'll get you set up. We're going to do some great training with that and uh, help you understand a little bit more about what that means as we go along. All right? We're hoping, we're hoping to baptize 100 people in October who are saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm in. I died to sin. I'm alive in Christ. It's going to be beautiful. All right? Now, Paul goes on from there, and he goes, now, i got to tell you some other things about this life that you're living. Now that you understand what your baptism was like and what it means or what it will mean for you, let me tell you some other things about this life that you're living in Christ. So he goes on in verse 5. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace." Many Christ followers seem to live our lives like sin is our master. Like sin controls us. Like sin gets us to do what it wants to do, wants us to do. We we serve it. We live under it. And then it mocks us when we've given to its temptations. Paul goes, you don't have to let sin be your master anymore. He goes, I've got good news for you. That's gospel. That's the book of Romans. Good for you. I've got good news for you. You don't have to let sin be your master. You don't have to let it control your life anymore. And then I'm not saying, I don't think Paul's saying that your life is going to be perfect after this, but you don't have to let it rule your life any longer. That's what your baptism means. That's what your faith in Christ means. He says you're no longer a slave to sin. Now that's all beautiful, except that I don't find the the image of slavery, I don't find that all that helpful to me in my life because I don't live in an environment where slavery happens. I've never been a slave. I've never been enslaved to someone. So I don't know what that's like. Now I have seen places where slavery happens today. We've, We've talked a lot about sex trafficking in this generation and we go, that is still slavery. So we've seen it a little bit, but in our world right here, we don't, we don't really get engaged with it. And I've never been a slave, and I bet you've never been a slave, and so most of us don't get that slavery language. So I'm like, well, how else, how else can we describe this today that will help us get what he's talking about? I landed on an idea that would help me figure this out. This may help you as well. When my, 
when my uh, children were young, one of my daughters, I won't tell you which one, but one of my daughters uh, should be protected that way a little bit. 50-50 chance, you guess which one it was if you know them. But, um, so one of my daughters would use this phrase when someone in her life would tell her like, you know, something to do, like you have to do this, or you have to do that, or don't do the other thing. You know, someone would tell her what to do. And it didn't matter if it was her mother or her dad or her younger brother. That would make her the older sister. That's not really helpful. <laughs> hmm. uh, let's see. Or anybody, or anybody else, uh, they'd tell her what to do, and she'd just pop out with this really confident phrase. She'd go, you're not the boss of me which did not go over the well the first time she said it to her father <laughs> or her mother. I don't know who taught her that phrase. I mean, which one of you is messing with my daughter and telling her, hey, you should tell your mom and dad someday. You're not the boss of me. I know where my daughter and my son, my daughters and my son learned, learned to say no. I know, I know who taught them no. My wife. <laughs> uh, and me. But I don't know, that, you know who, who teaches kids this stuff. You're not the boss of me. And that's not a really cool phrase for a child to use to an adult in any way. But that's a great phrase for a Christ follower to use towards sin. Because sin thinks it's your master. Sin thinks it's your boss. Sin thinks it gets to control you. And so many times you're like, yes, 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 master, I'll do it. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll give in to that temptation. And you can just say to sin, you're not the boss of me. Feels really good. You're not the boss of me. You can't make me do what you've been making me do throughout these years. It's, it's a declaration of freedom. And Paul describes it all the way through this passage. Down in verse 14, he says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall no longer be your master. There it is. Verse 12, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't let it be in charge. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Sin, you're not the boss of me. I'm free. Yeah, what's interesting is in my own life and maybe in your life as well, it seems like sin is in charge. Like sin does get the best of you so often. And if Paul's right, and if sin is not the boss of me, then how do I break free of that? Paul, thankfully, Paul gives us a couple of things that we can do, some steps that we can take as followers of Jesus to break the grip that sin has in our life, to break that grip of a master that it has in our lives. First thing he says to do, he says, I want you to learn to count. Listen again to verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. He says, learn to count. Count yourself as one who is alive from the dead. Count yourself as someone who has come back to life. Because nobody lives life better than one who's been raised from the dead. Count yourself that way. It's a, it's a word that literally means to think about it in a certain way. Like consider yourself this way. This is how to live your life. It's a word that comes from the business world. It's an accounting term. It means, it means fill up this column. 
count this into this column. So you can, you can look at your life and go, yeah, I, I give into sin all the time. I give into temptation all the time. There's my ledger. There's the record of all those things. It's in the book. Paul goes, start making a new column for yourself. In this column, it says, I have been raised with Christ. Sin no longer is my master. Death no longer has master, mastery over me. Put it in the column. Put it in the book. Write it down and count yourself that way. Be an accountant with your life in that kind of way. If resurrection is in your account, live like it. If coming back to life is in your account, live like it. Live out your baptism. Live out your faith. Now, that's helpful, but then he says one more thing that I find even more helpful than that. He says, as you're you're learning to count yourself as one who has been raised from the grave... Learn to make your life an offer. Take your life and make it an offer for how you can live this life. Verse 13, he he says offer three times. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So Paul looks at Paul looks at his own body. I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he's his own model for this. He looks at his own body and goes, I got members of my body. And it's interesting, we, we often call the church, like a local church, the body of Christ. So we are the body of Christ, and we have members in it. You're, you're members in the body of Christ. Well, he looks at his own body and he goes, well, my own body has members. Like, I've got eyes. They are members of my body. I've got ears. They are members of my body. I've got a nose and mouth and, and hands and feet and elbows. They are members of my body. I've got a mind. It's a member of my body. He goes, never offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't offer them that way. Don't give them up that way. But instead, offer the parts of your body, offer the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. So here's how I do this. I literally, this is literally my pattern that I do. Now, I don't do this every single day, and I go through journeys where this is, I'm doing, I'm doing this, and then, you know, another part of my spiritual life needs some work, so I do something different. But here's the journey that I do. In the morning before I get out of bed, I, I got to have a, like a, like a wake-up deal. You know, I don't want to pop out of bed and, ro- you know, like wake up and then roll over and I'm up. That's like too fast for me. Some of you are like that. I'm a morning person, but I still, I've got to roll into this thing a little slower than that. So I'll lie in my bed, and I'll go, okay, God, here's my day. I'm a resurrected follower of Christ. I've been brought back to life from the dead. And there are members of my body that I want to offer to you as tools of righteousness. So here's my eyes. I'm going to see things today, and I want everything that I see to be a tool for righteousness in your hand, God. Now, I don't get to say, I don't get to pick everything that comes across my eyes. I, certain things just like, they enter into my vision, and I'll, all of a sudden I saw that. And that's not always helpful. But there are a lot of things in my life that I choose to look at. And I go, God, I'm just going to offer you my eyes as an instrument of righteousness today. The things I choose to look at, I want to only accomplish righteousness in my life and the lives of others. And my ears, I offer my ears to God. Now, there are a lot of things that you hear that you have no control over. You know, when my kids were in high school and we were talking about language that people use and they would say, they would tell me the kind of language that students use in high school. And they're like, Dad, you cannot get away from it. 
have such sympathy for that. If you, live, if you work in an environment where, where foul language is just constant you know, in your ears and you can't get away from it, I have sympathy for you with that. Sometimes you can't help what you hear, but you can always help what you listen to. And I go, God, here's my ears today. I want to offer my ears to you to listen to those things that will cause righteousness. I'll give you my mouth. I'll give you the, th- God, the things that go into my mouth, may they only be useful for righteousness, like that holy donut. Oh, wait. And the things that come out of my mouth, may they only be useful for righteousness' sake. And I'll go through, I'll go through all the members of my body, my hands, my feet. Lord, let my feet only take me where righteousness can be happening through me, things like that. And I say, God, here's my life. Here's my body. I give it to you as an offering. I want you to accomplish righteousness through me. And it's interesting because all those, all those parts of your body that you have, the way God designed you, the way God shaped you, they all have a purpose. You don't listen with your eyes. I mean, I, in some ways, I guess you can. If you're paying attention to what someone's saying, your eyes would, would inform you. But you hear with your ears. You see with your eyes. You speak with your mouth. You serve with your hands. You, you do things with different parts of your body because they were designed that way. Paul says, use them as an instrument of righteousness. An instrument is just a tool to accomplish a, me- a, it's a means to accomplish an objective, an agenda, a, a project of some kind, right? So uh, there are different kinds of tools. Uh, in, the last, in the last three months, I've been working with a particular kind of tool called a rubber mallet. I've been working on a I've been working on a parkway in front of my house. Some of you know I moved into a new house, like an old house, new house, a year ago, and it's a lot um, more work than I thought. Yeah, and it probably will be for the rest of my life. But So I've been working on this parkway. I've been putting pavers, like in this front area, to be able to you know, park the car or the motorcycles or whatever out there, and, and it's nice and clean and solid. Solid was kind of a good thing. And so to get it all in there and ready, I've been, I've been putting sand down, then I put these pavers on there, and then got to take a rubber mallet and pound these pavers in there so that they get settled firm and strong and they don't move around when the weight of a car comes on top of those. And so this last week, I finished that project, that part of the project, and I'm, I'm hammering away. I got this tool, rubber mallet. It's a great tool for getting pavers to stay down. But this last week, this rubber mallet became an instrument of unrighteousness. <laughs> when my finger got between the mallet and a paver. Then I had to tell my mouth, you have been offered to God for purposes of righteousness. A hammer, a rubber mallet, is given as a tool. It's designed as a tool to accomplish certain things. And it's a beautiful tool to accomplish certain things. Uh, but you can't, play a, you can't play a song on it. It's not for that. It's for constructing things. Likewise, here's an instrument. This happens to be my wife's ukulele. And uh, she, she asked for a ukulele some, some years ago. So I'm like, oh, I'll get you a ukulele for your birthday. So she played it for about six months and then went in the closet. So I started playing it. A little bit. This is really interesting. You can use this as a hammer. <laughs> well, you shouldn't. You know, because and, and, it's not designed for that. It's not designed to be a hammer. If I were to take this outside and pound on concrete pavers with my wife's ukulele, she'd never see her ukulele again. And you'd never see me again. <laughs> it's an instrument. It's not 
the kind of instrument that a hammer is. It's a different kind of instrument. It's designed for making music, but if you use it to make music, it's beautiful. Every member of your body, God has given to you as an instrument of righteousness. And he says, I want you to offer yourself, offer the members of your body to God as an instrument of righteousness so that when you play it, it's beautiful and your life becomes an offering of righteousness to God. Which might go like this. I'm no longer a slave to fear. You're not the boss of me. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. You're not the boss of me. I am a child of God. Yeah, thank you. And your life can sound a lot better than that. Your life can sound a lot better than that because you have these tools that God has given to you. You've been given these instruments that can accomplish righteousness through your life. How great would it be if you could learn in your life to say to sin, you are not the boss of me. My life has been resurrected and I offer it to God every day for his purpose. That would be a beautiful song. And nobody lives life better than one who has been brought back to life from the dead. Jesus, I pray for us today that this would be our song, that this would be our story, that we would be people that look back on our baptism, or maybe for some look forward to our baptism, to be able to say, that day reminds me that I died to sin and I was buried to it, and I was brought back to life for the purposes God has for me. God, would you let that be so of us? Would you teach us to count our lives that way? Would you teach us to offer our lives to you that way? And would you transform us as that happens? And through us, would you bring transformation to others? Lord, thank you. We love you. We seek you through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.